This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Just before Christmas, President Obama made a move to block drilling in the Arctic and Atlantic Oceans to try and preserve those territories. But already, these are very interesting areas to look at. The melting of the ice layer in the Arctic has actually opened up areas for possible drilling that had been buried under ice just a few years ago. And so it brings up an interesting question that it's discussed in a new paper from Wharton's Sarah Light. Should companies be able to benefit from past indiscretions that they may or may not have been involved with? Her paper, co-authored with Nicholas Cornell, is titled Wrongful Benefit and Arctic Drilling. And Sarah joins us here in the studio right now. Good to see you. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Nice to be back. Thank Thank you you. for having me. I guess we need to start this discussion with this idea of the wrongful benefit principle, which is kind of the basis, the background of, of of your paper. Yes, that's right. So this paper, uh, which honestly has just been such a pleasure to work on with my colleague, Nico Cornell, kind of brings together my interest in environmental law and policy with his expertise in normative ethics and normative business ethics. And so what, what we are fascinated by when we look at the issues related to Arctic drilling is that there's there's a movement. Mm -hmm. There's a movement that has been um, very important in the past few years, the keep it in the ground or leave it in the ground movement, which has basically made an argument that fossil fuels that have not yet been um, dug up should be left in the ground because of the terrible impact that that continued fossil fuel burning will have on climate change. Um, And this argument applies to the Atlantic, it applies to the Arctic, it applies to the North Sea, it applies to sort of wherever fossil fuels are to be found. And what Nico and I tried to do in this paper about the wrongful benefit principle is to look specifically at the Arctic and to ask whether there's anything unique about Arctic drilling. And if so, what is that? And so the conclusion that we came to is that there is something unique about Arctic drilling. And it's not just about the consequences of Arctic drilling. It's not just that the Arctic is a pristine environment, uh-huh. or that if there were a spill, it would be more difficult to clean up in the Arctic because mm. it's harder to get boats there. Right. Nor is it a question of the fact that there are sort of unique marine life that could be harmed. All of those are true. We absolutely agree that those are all considerations. But what we are most interested in is, is kind of what you alluded to earlier, is that there's sort of this strange puzzle. Yeah. And that is a historical one about how the opportunity to drill in the Arctic came about. And the irony, of course, is that um, there are areas of the Arctic that have long been inaccessible Uh to drilling because they are covered in ice for too much of the year, and it's not therefore possible or at the very least economically viable for firms to pursue drilling in those areas. But because of climate change itself, which has been caused by the burning of fossil fuels, The open water season, which is the time during which there's less than 10% ice concentration in the Arctic and therefore there's sort of the potential for drilling to occur, that has lengthened from a period of 13 weeks annually to 17 weeks over the last 30 years. And what that has done is basically it means that climate change caused by burning of fossil fuels in the past 
has opened up new business opportunities in the Arctic. Right. And ironically, <laughs> the most, you know, uh, fruitful potential business opportunity is for more drilling. Right. And so what we do in our article is to um, ask whether the historical reason why that opportunity is available is relevant to what should be done going forward. Right. And so this is all a very long answer to your initial question, but this is kind of what was motivating us. And so what we um, what we argue is that the historical cause of this opportunity, the, the fact that it was the burning of fossil fuels in the past that yeah. opened up the Arctic to the potential for drilling in the future, is morally significant to the question of whether oil extraction should be permitted in the Arctic in the future. And so what we do in the paper is we kind of explore the boundaries of that principle, which is what we call the wrongful benefit principle. And, and obviously this becomes extremely important right now uh, because of the move that President Obama made to kind of block off the Arctic from drilling, but also the potential of that his move made by executive order does have the potential of being lifted once the new Congress comes in. And as you were explaining to me, it has to be the Congress. It couldn't be President-elect Trump when he goes into office. Right. So so this is a really interesting thing. Of course, um, uh, I like to think that President Obama read the draft of my paper in which we advocated <laughs> a moratorium on drilling in the Arctic before, uh, before issuing his presidential memorandum. But so here's what happened. So on December 20th of last year, the president um, issued a presidential memorandum and actually two, uh, two memoranda. And one applied to the Atlantic and the other applied to the Arctic. And basically, the president used his unilateral authority under a statute passed by Congress in 1953 called the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, mm -hmm. the OXLA, Section 12A. And what this section says is that the president may withdraw unleased land from future drilling. Full stop. Yeah. And um, so this provision has been used in the past, I believe, more than 10 times by presidents, other, in, including and other than Obama. Right. Um, so he withdrew lands in the Hannah Shoal region of the Arctic a couple of years ago out of particular concern about sort of the pristine environment and, and spills. Um, but so he used his authority to withdraw these lands. And yeah. immediately it caused this outcry and this furor. Um, and there were calls to reverse it and uh, statements by the incoming administration that, you know, we're not going to stand for this. So the interesting thing is that the text of the statute itself provides authority to the president to withdraw lands from leasing. Right. It does not provide authority to the president to undo a withdrawal. And so it is, I think, the best interpretation of that statute that the president does not have unilateral authority to undo the withdrawal. So I don't think that an incoming President Trump would be able to simply, with the stroke of a pen, right. write a memorandum and undo the withdrawal. I think what would have to happen actually would be um, either Congress itself could amend the statute to right. provide the president with that authority, or Congress could um, simply override the presidential action in a statute itself. But I actually don't think that the president has the authority unilaterally to undo the withdrawal. But getting back to this issue that, that we talk about at the top with wrongful benefit, one of the things you also bring up, which is an interesting little piece of history uh, in our country, are these son of Sam laws, 
which were brought forth, obviously in the wake of 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 the Son of Sam murders uh, back in the seventies. Uh, that realistically, people like that should not be able to benefit post incident through films, publication of books, you know, whatever it may be. Uh, which, to a degree, is kind of similar to what you were talking about with the impact that climate change has had on the Arctic. It would be not a murder, but it obviously would be similar to a degree. So great. I love that you brought that up. That is sort of a, a really important part of the way that Nico and I make this argument. So what we what we aim to do in the paper is to demonstrate that this irony of Arctic drilling, that the historical fossil fuel emissions have created this opportunity for profit is not unique to Arctic drilling. But in fact, it is something that courts and ethicists and philosophers, it is a sort of problem of wrongful benefit that has occurred in many other contexts. And the sort of And so the way that we articulate the principle in the paper is that it is wrong to benefit knowingly from a bad act if the benefit one would receive is sufficiently connected to the bad act. And the clearest example of that is when the bad act is some culpable or illegal act like a murder. And the connection is that it is the perpetrator's own action that created the opportunity for a benefit. So that's, I think, frankly, the the case that most intuitively resonates with us. So um, so there is a famous case that has been discussed in uh, many a law school classroom, um, um, as well as among many philosophers, called Riggs versus Palmer. And in Riggs versus Palmer, um, Mr. Elmer Palmer uh, was set to inherit under his grandfather's will. And he was concerned that his grandfather was going to change his will. And so he murdered his grandfather before the grandfather could change his will. Oh, God. Now, two of uh, Mr. Palmer's relatives sued um, and basically brought an action in court saying Mr. Palmer should not be able to inherit because he murdered his grandfather. And uh, the court agreed. And so there's a whole dispute in the law about sort of what was the court's reasoning. But we take this case to be kind of the most um, clear example of a wrongful benefit in that what Elmer Palmer did in murdering his grandfather was certainly a wrongful act. Murder is intentionally harmful. It is in some ways the worst thing that one could do. And so he should not be permitted to benefit from having – caused his grandfather's death by then inheriting the money. Now, um, legislatures have taken up that principle and taken it beyond the inheritance context Mm -hmm. to the Son of Sam laws, for example, um, where uh, let's imagine that somebody commits a murder and then wants to write a book about it, um, that basically that the person who committed the murder and wants to write the book is essentially not allowed to profit from the proceeds of the book, but actually has to put any profit related to the book into a trust for the benefit of the victims. Um, And so the challenge, of course, is that intuitively that seems like a very, very clear case. Nobody wants Mr. Palmer to inherit here. Then the question is, how do we apply that to the case of Arctic drilling? Well, yeah, because you're talking about an area where in many cases there aren't people living up there, correct? Um, In many cases, there are not people living. Exactly. So this isn't murder. And drilling for oil is not illegal. In fact, it is done with the express leasing authority when it has been done in the past with the express leasing authority of the United States 
government or uh, another government, Norway or Russia or right. some other some other country. So our argument as to why that version, there are actually four versions of the wrongful benefit principle, why that version applies is um, that uh, it is clearly the oil and gas industry, whether in investor-owned or state-owned firms. So it's the same perpetrator, right? These are the firms that have drilled in the past. These are the firms that are seeking permits to drill in the future. So then the question is, how bad is the act, right? Does the act of drilling in the past, which is clearly harmful to the climate, we know that now, is it the same as murder? And on the one hand, one could say, look, it is a culpable act. Since the mid-80s, if you were calculating sort of all global greenhouse gas emissions, the data shows that more than half of those greenhouse gas emissions have been emitted since the mid-80s when we have known about climate change. And in fact, oil and gas firms have taken steps to obfuscate um, the impact of drilling, which sort of contributes to the nature of its being intentional. And in that way, we would argue that it kind of fits into this culpable act by the same actor, and therefore the wrongful benefit principle should apply. But we take the argument sort of the next step and we say even if it's not a culpable act like murder, it's still causally harmful. Sure. Right. Yeah. It still caused yeah. harm in the past. Yep. And so if you look at um, these slayer statutes, the statutes that prevent someone who has committed murder from inheriting, they actually apply um, to situations in which um, the person could not be held culpable. Um, Mm. So a a minor um, who can't be held culpable under the law can still still be precluded from inheriting. So our argument is that it doesn't necessarily need to be a culpable act like murder. It could also be simply a causal bad act by the same perpetrator. Which probably plays more into this because you're talking about the the cause or and or the effect of what may or may not have happened to the environment over the last couple of decades. Obviously, with a loss of level of ice, you know, in areas that were buried in ice 30 years ago and not so much now, there's that causal impact on that specific area. Absolutely. And so one of the things that I think is very interesting, it, you know, there's obviously been um, a lawsuit filed against Exxon related yeah. to, you know, what did it know and what did it not know? Um, one of the uh, researchers um, from Exxon back in 1992, um, this is a document that came out in the context of all this litigation, a researcher at Exxon stated publicly that a longer open water season in the Arctic could reduce the firm's costs of drilling by 30 to 50 percent. Oh, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it's very clear that this is, you know, that this is something that was known. What becomes sort of, again, for me, very interesting is, but what if it's not the same actor, right? What if it's... What if it's Shell or some somebody else? Right, exactly. Yeah. Or what if you know there? Like we've recently discovered that there was water once on Mars. What if it's a Martian, you know, firm or right. from, from someone who's entirely innocent, who has never contributed to to climate change? Okay. Should they likewise be prohibited from drilling? Okay. And so the just in the same way that we draw the analogy to the the murderer who is seeking to inherit, um, in our view, there is something called uh, tainted good. Some goods, by virtue of how they are acquired, become tainted or have some kind of moral significance. And the clearest example of this would be something like conflict diamonds. 
Okay. So you may not have mined conflict diamonds, but um, the and, diamond and, itself takes on this normative significance that no one should arguably be buying diamonds that are fueling conflict. Well, right. And I was going to say conflict diamonds are, as you describe them, are diamonds that end up causing some kind of conflict in a country on whatever level it may be. Exactly. Exactly. And so just in the same way that, you know, your grandmother's brooch might be normatively sort of significant in a way that some identical other brooch might not be, a conflict diamond has the significance. And so the kind of second half of our paper looks at the question of what if it's not the same perpetrator? What if it's someone else? Is it possible that Arctic oil, by virtue of how it has been exposed through past fossil fuel burning and climate change, does that make it tainted in a way that no one should be allowed to drill for that oil? And so we draw an analogy to conflict diamonds, um, which we kind of spell out in more depth in the paper. Are you starting to hear reaction from Various elements, whether it be in Washington, D.C. or, you know, from other people around the world about this research and about this idea that seemingly it's going to be one, I think, that's going to be in play. I don't know if it'll be in the first hundred days of the Trump administration, but it's something that I think we will see come up as an issue in the next several years. So, um so the president has not called yet, but uh, you we know can get we'll him on see. The phone if you we'll want, see. Right? I'm I'm optimistic. Happy to give advice. Um, so we have. Um, I think that the contribution that this paper really makes is that when you think about the way that environmental law and policy are ordinarily sort of discussed, yeah. they are discussed in terms of consequences. Right? What sure. is going to be the future impact of X? And what we're trying to do is to say that sort of that history matters and that we need to think about how we got where we are before we can move forward. And so I think that that's a real contribution here. Um, The reactions that we've had to the paper are are really sort of all over the map, both from law and policy scholars as well as philosophy scholars. Um, I think that the biggest challenge is sort of if you think about the different versions of the wrongful benefit principle, the one that is most intuitively um, widely accepted is the the murderer inheriting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And yeah. the one that's hardest is what if it's a different perpetrator, um, you know, with a tainted object and a not intentionally harmful act. Right. Right. That's a that's maybe less intuitively obvious. Right. And so then the challenge becomes how do you actually square the facts of Arctic drilling with that kind of continuum of different versions of the wrongful benefit principle. Does it matter that the shareholders of Exxon from 1992 are different from the shareholders of Exxon today? Does it matter – you know, that, uh, you know, what we knew or what we didn't know. Or or it, it, does it matter the fact that Exxon's philosophy corporately may have been one thing in the 70s and 80s, but as kind of has been put out, Rex Tillerson, who's going to potentially be Secretary of State, has talked about carbon pricing. And he has a belief that there is an impact from climate change. So, you know, that's a true change of philosophy at the head of that company, although he's you know not no longer the CEO. Sure, and so I think one of the questions that your comment raises is: Is there a way to kind of break this causal link? Right? Yeah. Is can can we ever do something to undo this tainted relationship such that we could move forward? Right. And so we've gotten all sorts of really interesting questions, um, and. You know, I think our thought is that we want to kind of advance the discussion by introducing, 
normative considerations that are not necessarily already part of the legal and policy discussion. Which would be what? Which would be this kind of um, how did how we got here? Where yeah. did this opportunity come from? And yeah. that kind of history matters. Um, so um, so it's been a really exciting project to work on. And then, you know, myself as a law and policy scholar, I'm now I'm currently teaching environmental law at Penn Law School for the semester. Nice. And, and so I, you know, basically gave my students a, a problem of let's interpret the Section 12A of the Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act and could a new president undo this? And what, what are they saying? What are the students starting to say on this? Because obviously not only your students, but a lot of people are wondering about things that may change under President-elect Trump. And, and this is just one of them. Right. Absolutely. So they – so it was – uh, to give them credit, it was only the second day of class, but okay. I think that they <laughs> right. all, uh, right. but they all asked really good questions about, well, what does the rest of the statute say, and are there other statutes that might be relevant, and what's right. been done in the past, and all of that seems to point pretty clearly in the direction that this is something that cannot be undone without congressional action. But we'll see. So, ironically, with my uh, with my um, semester, I've only given them the first half of the syllabus. Because I'm not entirely sure what we're going to be talking Whoa. about in the second half right. or how to pitch it yeah. because it very much depends on what's going to happen. I think there's going to be a lot of action in the environmental law and administrative law regulatory state space. And one of the biggest questions is how durable existing regulations, guidance documents are and how many of them will be reversed either with consideration or with very little consideration. But in, in laying out this, this idea, it, it seems to me that as important as a lot of this is, maybe one of the biggest challenges is understanding and, and, and looking at this link between companies that could could have had a direct impact on this and ones that may have an, kind of had an indirect impact on this and whether there should be any kind of differentiation between the two of them in what could potentially go forward that's that's a that's a kind of that, that's a hard challenge to kind of break through isn't it right i mean i think that that would as a policy matter raise all sorts of informational sure, problems absolutely. and in our paper we actually advocate treating everyone the same. Right. Um, and frankly, I mean, while the discussion has focused on firms, because it's obviously firms that are capable of doing the drilling, I can't go out there with, you know, a shovel and access <laughs> Arctic oil. Um, in some sense, we've all been contributors to, ch to climate change. Yeah. And yeah. so there is some sense in which none of us should be allowed to profit, arguably, from the, the oil that's been uncovered or it, being uncovered there. It, it, is it your thought that maybe at some day we will see this idea taken up more at the governmental level to address this. I mean, obviously, we have that 1953 law in place, but maybe it's, it, it's something, depending on what happens with these lands over the next few years, that this may have to be something that, not necessarily this Congress, but a future Congress will have to look at and really maybe think about changes that may need to occur through the, the bill back in 1953. Sure. So I definitely think that um, that normative considerations should be playing a role in the decision-making process about how to address Arctic drilling or, you know, drilling in general, yeah. um, not only in the United States, but also at a global level, uh, because right. obviously the United States is not the only nation with access to the Arctic or jurisdiction Russia, of the Arctic. And, yeah. Russia and China. Yeah. I mean, Russia planted a titanium 
flag directly under the North Pole <laughs> to uh, to claim its stake to those lands. So, you know, we're not the only country with an interest in this. And sure. so I'd like to think that this principle should inform global conversations as well. Great to have you here. This Thank is good. I, I can imagine this is going to be a topic not only of the people in government, but obviously the oil industry and and, and obviously the scholars like yourself going forward for many many years. So absolutely, I, I, I can I can't wait to see how this all plays out. Thanks, Sarah. Great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. You got it. For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.